Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, your weekly jab, your dose of science. Um, you get another dose of science in a few weeks as well. Actually, you get another dose of science every week. We are better than the vaccination program in that respect. We just keep coming at you. Um, I suppose that's a plus. Claire, <laughs> what kind of inoculation do you have for us today? <laughs> Well, Chris, um, I don't know if this is going to be better than a COVID-19 jab, um, but it probably will um, uh, be more painless. I don't know. Anyway, um, this this week on the show, we have um, a special guest. Um, I will be speaking to Dog. Dr. Maggie Watson, who's a lecturer in ornithology at Charles Sturt University. So um, Maggie's going to talk to us about, you know, the mouse plague that's happening um, all sort of, you know, throughout New South Wales, Queensland, it's coming into Victoria now. Um, It's devastating crops and um, just causing a whole lot of frustration and um, just some hellish situations in a lot of in, in, in a lot of r- rural and regional centres throughout the east coast of Australia. Um, uh, Maggie will be talking to us about some of the pesticides or rodenticides um, that the government is suggesting that farmers use. And there have there've been some suggestions that maybe some of the um, more poisonous um, uh, uh, pesticides um, have some of the... the the barriers removed from their use so they're you know a little a little bit more easy to come by and a little bit um uh and a little bit easier to use so So, these are things that they can't use at the moment and they're saying they're going to basically allow people to use them that's right yeah yeah so there's um different classes of these pesticides and because the mouse plague's so bad um the government's suggesting that maybe um, we we free up some of those, but that's going to have potentially devastating effects on the rest of the ecosystem. Um, you know, from from birds of prey to invertebrates to potentially um, you know animals that humans um, you know love and also love to eat. So uh, Meg is going to talk to us all about that. Fantastic. All right. And Stu, what have you got for us today? Well, I've got a little bit of uh, mental inoculation, I guess. Um, I I tracked down... Now, you might have heard of Tom Thumb as a, a folklore character from from years years and years of English folklore, have this little guy, Tom Thumb. I found a guy who actually goes by the name of Tom Thumb, who has written uh, a book. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an e-book, but it also has a physical... Uh, printed copy you can you can get a hold of, uh, and he also has a blog, um, and they're all called Science for Hippies. So this guy is a bona fide hippie. He hitchhiked to India when he was a young fella, and that's how he got the name Tom Thumb because he's always sticking his thumb out. Ah, the thumb. Uh, but uh, he's written a book. You know, he's come across in his in his hippie lifestyle. He's come across a lot of people who 
seem to reject science because it seems like a whole bunch of boffins in a lab or a whole bunch of arrogant people who think they know everything. But then he sort of looked into it himself and found that actually scientists are, as we all know, in love with the world and fascinated with the way the world actually works. And the more he looked into it, the more he found that it actually aligned with a lot of things he he felt about the world, but it was a better way of understanding it. So he's put this book together to try and, you know, to win people over who might be a bit less uh, involved in science or a bit less connected to science to try and understand how science works and how it can actually help them uh, and, and sort of connect it to, I guess, a hippie kind of ideology where, you know, if you if you love all the things in the world, then surely the best thing to do is understand how they work and how you can help them uh, exist and make the world a better place. So it's an interesting, interesting book and an interesting chat I had with, uh, with Tom Thumb. So um, that is coming up later in the show. Well, far out, man. Um, I am digging the vibe of that one. Um, all right. No, no, there's a lot of embarrassment here. Okay, <laughs> on with the show. So you've probably heard of the mouse plague that is causing devastation to farms and homes throughout a lot of New South Wales, Queensland, and heading into Victoria now. But some of the ways that the government is recommending to control the mouse population, this plague, can have devastating ecological effects. To talk us through the good, the bad and the ugly of mouse control and how we can mitigate its effects, we have Dr Maggie Watson, lecturer in ornithology at Charles Sturt University. Maggie, welcome to Lost in Science. Well, thank you for having me. Tell me, where are you now? Um, Have you seen the effects of the mouse plague? What does the situation look like? I'm uh, in regional New South Wales, um, uh, around Albury, and we're just starting to get the first trickles of of the mouse plague uh, coming through. The mouse plague that we're seeing right now is kind of the the worst bit of of the cycle. So you, you have a lot of summer rains and they bring lots of uh, grass growth and uh, crop growth and and suddenly you've got this huge abundance of food uh, it's it's wet um, and the mice start to breed and they normally when mice breed there'll be a nest over there and there'll be a nest over there and the adults won't get too close to each other but something happens when um, when a plague begins uh, their behavior changes and they can suddenly begin to be really close to each other and they continue breeding, they continue breeding, and they don't mind being right next to each other. And suddenly there's more babies and more babies and they're breeding every three weeks and they're making 10 or 12 uh, pups at a time. And when you're in the middle of the plague, you walk out the door and there's a wave. There's this undulating wave of, of furry mass just everywhere. It's covering everything, squeaks, jumps, Every fence line has trails of poo and urine. Uh, your car smells like urine. There's little tails stuck everywhere. And when it gets to that point, you would expect some of the, the, the natural controls to be kicking in. And that does happen in areas where lots of broad scale baiting hasn't been done. The problem happens over time when, uh, when there's 
a no longer habitat for the natural predators to, um, mm. to, to breed up themselves. When you've uh, removed the rocky outcrops where all the lizards and snakes live, right. um, you've removed the old trees where all the birds of prey are living. And you, 15 years ago, you've used some nasty poison that has gone into the food chain and started to kill off the predators. Mm. So the plagues are normal. It's a normal thing that happens in Australia. Um, you see uh, plagues of long-haired rats, native long-haired rats uh, in northern New South Wales, and they cause mm. um, not really plagues, but huge uh, populations of leatherwing kites. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a cycle. Lots of prey, lots of predators, and then they eat each other and everything goes back and up and down. So it's this right. kind of cyclical thing that happens. Yeah. Boom, boom but, and bust. Boom and bust. But we're, we've kind of messed up the system a bit by taking predators out of the equation. So the population just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's really no way of stopping the mice until either the food runs out or it gets cold enough that they stop breeding so prolifically. This sounds like hell on earth. Um, and I imagine for a farmer whose livelihood is, is their crops, um, that they would be doing everything they can to try and control the mass population, you know, before they get through all the food. So this includes, um, you know, using different types of poisons. Can you talk to us a bit about those poisons and what the potential issues are? Yeah, so there's, um, there's a, a group of poisons that are called anticoagulants. And people will be familiar with that because if you've got high blood pressure, you've got to take a, a drug called warfarin. And warfarin thins the blood. Uh, and if you, if you take these really low doses and it prevents you from having a, a heart attack. In much higher doses, it causes you to bleed to death internally. So um, when these uh, anticoagulant chemicals are, are discovered, these are the, the basis for um, a lot of what we call first-generation uh, rodenticides. And the two ones that we still use today are, are warfarin and a one that's called uh, kumametrafeld. I feel like I've heard of warfarin from the rat baits that you see in the supermarkets or in Bunnings and whatnot. Yes. So um, there's a, I think it's called double strength rat sack is warfarin. And that's a, uh, that's a first generation one. Uh, it takes a couple of feeds for the, uh, the mouse or the rat to, uh, to get to die. And it breaks down really, really fast in the animal. So that doesn't cause something called secondary poisoning, which means when your dog or a, an owl eats the dead or dying mouse, because it's uh, already broken down, they don't get the poison. Right. So then, you, then you come to second generation poisons. So second generation anticoagulants are ones that do the same thing. They make you bleed to death. They make the rat and the mouse bleed to death, but you only need one uh, meal for it to happen. And those chemicals do not break down very fast at all. So the one that's been suggested by the New South Wales government is called bromodialone. And bromodialone is a really, really nasty poison because it doesn't break down for over a hundred days. So the rat or the mouse eats the bromodialone and dies. And if something else eats that mouse or rat, then they get a really big poison dose. If the mouse or the rat just dies in the field and they start to rot down, that poison is still in their stomachs 
And so insects come and start eating the poison and they get the dose. And then other birds and animals that eat insects get the dose of the poison. And so uh, we have this long food chain infiltration from insects to slugs to, to birds all getting this poison. And sometimes it's not lethal, but it will impact their reproductive uh, ability later on. So bromodilin, um, second generation poison, is, is the one that BirdLife Australia and many researchers um, across Australia are really concerned about. Uh, we don't want that entering the food chain at this point because uh, many of our native birds are in trouble already. They don't need any more <laughs> issues uh, causing their populations to, to downturn. And even worse, it's super poisonous to sheep. Right. So you treat the grain and you scatter that, that grain around in your fields and you've got sheep and they're going to eat it and then they're going to die too. Uh, or your family dog. It's, it's, it's insidious. It really is. So, so like you said, the Australian government is supporting the use of these second generation. New, this is New South Wales. So the, the way it works is um, there's, a, there's a, a group, there's lots of poisons out there for, um, for farming and, and uh, things like that. And they have labels that tell you how you're allowed to use them. And the New South Wales government has asked the APVMA, which is the federal body that governs these chemicals, for an exemption uh, to use it off-label in the fields rather than as a block in cage in a building. So the APVMA have already agreed for the double-strength zinc phosphide, which was, is yet another chemical <laughs> uh, use, which C- the CSRO have been doing some experiments with, and they think that this one's going to uh, work really well because it's a, it's a poison that's not an anticoagulant. And it, it basically is coated on the grain, the animal eats the grain, and when the poison hits the stomach acid, it turns into um, a gas, a toxic gas, which kind of permeates the body, right. and the animal dies, and there's no residue left. Yes, it's really toxic if you yourself eat it, but that secondary poisoning risk is much lower. They've already agreed to do this. The APVMA um, understand that the, the plague uh, uh, the farmers need some control. And as soon as they got, uh, New South Wales got this permission, they went and asked for bromodilone uh, permission to use off-label. And this is really a curveball because you can't find a country in the world that will use this poison because it's so bad for wildlife and it's so toxic. Why are we suddenly deciding, oh, yeah, zinc phosphide, whatever, let's use bromodilone and just kill everything. Yeah, that'll work. Mm. Mm. The way that you're talking about, you know, sheep, insects, slugs, you know, everything within the ecosystem has, you know, really negative effects to this, to this chemical, to this mm. rodent killer. But what about humans? What are the what are the potential effects for human health? So, if you eat it, it's bad news. <laughs> it will affect you the same way. The effects on the on the food chain are the the, the bad bits. There's evidence that if chickens eat the grain, then they will take that poison and they will put it in their eggs. So not saying that it's going to be used around chicken farms, but there Mm. is that real risk of any animal that eats the poison grain has the potential for us 
to go and then eat eat that animal. So whether it be sheep or cattle um, or chickens or their eggs, there there is that that chance. And then the last thing you ever want is to discover that your dog has mm. gotten into the into the poison, and you know you've got minutes to get them to the vet to get the antidote. There's there's been a, a lot of work done in North America. Um, with birds of prey that have had these secondary poisoning. And um, when they do the autopsy and they open them up, it's just a pool of blood because uh, they're bleeding to death internally. Um, there's vets that I've talked to who've had to deal with sheep that have gotten into these, these poisons. And it's no one wants this. It sounds like an incredibly awful way to go. Yes. Um, do you- do you see a way out of this, you know, this awful mouse play with all its devastating effects without the use of these secondary pesticides? Can I call them pesticides? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the pesticides is like the bigger word. Um, yeah. So we, we say rodenticides because these are specifically for rodents, but yeah, it's all the same sort of words. So yes, BirdLife Australia um, have put out uh, guidelines for this sort of thing, um, and um, all the researchers that I know, um, we're all we're all speaking from the same uh, playbook here. Avoid at all costs second generation poisons; they're just too dangerous. Stick to the first generation poisons. Racumin is the brand name, and double strength rat sack. If you're looking to use them in your house, sort of thing, those two are the the ones. Uh, that you can find at uh, the grocery stores sort of thing. Farmers have access to these chemicals as well. Stick to the first generation poisons, stick to the already approved zinc phosphide, uh, which also has less of a risk of secondary poisoning. In reality, the plague is going to advance regardless of what we do. We can't kill enough mice (laughs) to stop it in its tracks. It's just got to run its course at this point. And you can try and mitigate as much damage as you can, but uh, there are going to be devastating losses. And as the cold weather rolls in, they'll stop, regardless of what we do. Curious to know whether there are any government interventions that don't include poison, something more holistic so we can be better prepared for future mouse plagues. The, the boom-bust cycle is something that Australia has anyway regardless of whether or not it's an introduced mouse or it's um, a native rodent uh, or locust plagues, uh, these things happen. The, there's, there's two things that we can do. There's uh, modeling. So you, uh, you, you put in lots of information, you figure out when and where the plagues are going to happen and then you go in before the plague starts and you do certain things mm. like um, you plant decoy crops have low fat or, or low nutritional value, which fools the mice into thinking that there's not really enough good food around. You dig deep, deep till to mm. break, break up their wintering hollows, nests, whatever. So there's things that the farmers can do if the prediction comes uh, along. Yeah. The second thing that you can do is uh, try and boost the natural predators before the plague happens so that they can come and clean up uh, the populations before they get out of hand. So leaving rocky outcrops in the landscape, leaving old hollow trees, dedicating riparian areas to, to the native vegetation, having uh, strip farming where you're, uh, you've got your, your crop 20 or 40 meters of crop and then 20 or 40 meters of uh, woodland and alternating that back and forth so that it's not one monoculture that the, that the mice take advantage of. 
And Maggie, has there been any research into looking at whether there's some sort of, you know, viral solution to this, like a like the Khaleesi virus for rabbits or, you know, the, um, the potential herpes virus for carp? Um, is there that on the horizon for the invasive mouse that's um, causing the plague? There was. Uh, CSIRO had a dedicated um, rodent eradication group uh, that was defunded twice once by John Howard and once by Tony Abbott, I believe. Uh, And uh, since then, there hasn't been any research in that field. Part of the issue is that we have native rodents in Australia. And so potentially any disease that you would bring in to deal with the house mice would easily jump species. And you'd be dealing with a much bigger problem (laughs) to, to lose all your native rodents. And uh, because there aren't any specific house mice diseases out there. So it's, um, it's a nice idea and it's maybe something um, in the future that we can consider, but uh, we're behind uh, the research eight ball at the moment. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for coming Lost in Science today and informing us about um, the different generations of rodenticides and, you know, potentially a better way forward in being able to hopefully mitigate some of the effects of this mass plague, but more importantly, uh, be better prepared for future ones. Thank you for having me. I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. Now, a lot of people listen to the show and our purpose in this show is to try and promote science and get people interested in science and, you know, literally get lost in science. And uh, I've come across a fellow science enthusiast who probably came maybe to science from a different angle. His name is Tom Thumb, and he has a blog called Science for Hippies. And from this uh, blog, he's also written a book called Science for Hippies, which is coming out. And I have asked Tom to join us on the show this week to talk a little bit about why he has come up with this book and why he started his blog in the first place. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Tom. Nice to be with you, Stu. First things first, Science for Hippies, what is this, what is this title all about? Where did this come from? I mean, I suppose I'm a bona fide hippie. Um, <laughs> when I was 20, I hitchhiked to India. That's how I got the name Tom Thumb. And um, I spent most of my life on the road and hanging out on beaches, around campfires, um, long periods in nature at a time, hanging out with people who don't tend to have a nine to five job. And um, over the years, as I started doing more and more reading, I began to notice um, a lot of strange beliefs that I was quite sure couldn't quite be right. I mean, for instance, I was once with somebody who asked me if I believed in bacteria because I asked him not to put his lips to my water bottle. And I was like, well, of course I believe in bacteria. And he said, well, isn't it just your, your immune system there and your positive attitude that keeps you healthy? And I didn't know how to argue this. And so over the years, I slowly tried to make very simple step-by-step explanations or arguments that eventually coalesced in this book. 
And uh, so, so before the book, there, there was the blog and you've, you've got quite a few posts on the blog. What, what prompted you to actually start writing this stuff down? Well, as I say, I had this book written in my head for many years, I guess, and I always put it off. And um, I organized a little festival here in the Czech Republic each summer. And last summer it was canceled because of the pandemic. So I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands. And then I started seeing what everyone was posting on social media, these different memes that were going around, the whole COVID denialism thing, people sharing stats for the very first time in their lives to prove that COVID is no worse than the flu. And um, I thought, well, I've got all this time, I might as well get to it and try to marshal some arguments that might change some minds out there. Now it's not it's not just specifically focused on on uh, on medicine or health or anything. Uh, what was the starting point for for getting a scientific view across to, I guess, the hippie uh, uh, mentality? I guess. Well, there's a feeling that um, if you feel something, it must be true. So you hear some statement like um, COVID is a great threat to public health. And a lot of people would just put their hand on their heart and say, mm, doesn't sit well with me. It can't be true. And I really wanted to show people that your intuition is an amazing tool. It's something almost magical. It's great when you're dancing, when you're playing music, when you're reading a room full of people. And it's really quite rubbish when it comes to assessing whether something is objectively true in the outside world. So I really wanted to show people the limits of intuition. Why well, it's a great by itself, but it also needs some um, skepticism, some rational thinking to go along with it. And I, I saw one of the uh, one of the posts you've got on there on the on the blog is about uh, is about how you know it's it's a hippie ideal to love all things, um, but you but you say that you know without understanding those things, it's it's hard to love them. What can you can you maybe expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so love is like one of those key hippie words along with energy, right? Um, And everyone will profess to love everyone in the world. But if you ask me what love is, it's not just about a a feel-good feeling of, hey, you know, me and the world, we're doing great. It's about effort. When you love your child, you wake up at 5 a.m. when they do. When you love your partner, you talk to them even when you're really tired and they need Um, someone to listen to their problems and so to really love the world is to understand the world and that takes learning and that takes let's say effort so a lot of hippies which is my kind of demographic um, will love nature without really knowing anything about it and how it works and the trouble is that you can have a wonderfully glowing attitude towards the world and then refuse to vaccinate your kids and maybe your kids will be just fine, but you'll be part of a problem that means that somebody else's kids somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world even may end up suffering. And there's nothing loving about that. I, I really kind of like this idea that uh, to, to show your love for all things, you have to actually put in the effort and the time to understand how they work so you can, you can help them, you know, lead their best lives and, 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 you know, have the best experience of the world for themselves as well. I, th- I really like this idea. Is is the book available in a physical form or is this is this something you're working towards? 
Yeah, it's just been published um, on print on demand via Amazon. So you can order it in Australia via Amazon Australia. Um, and um, I'm also happy to give the PDF away to anybody who can't afford it um, because it's essentially, it would be nice to be remunerated for my year of writing, but I also, it's a message I want to get out, get out there. I've lived a very selfish life, really, just kind of having a good time most of my 44 years on this planet. So um, it's also nice to do something that might have a positive effect somewhere else, too. Have you had much, uh, much feedback on, on, on the book so far? Have you, have you had readers' responses and, and maybe on the blog as well? Uh, I had my first piece of hate mail yesterday. That was uh, fun. Um, I was told by somebody that I'm not a real hippie, which was... <laughs> I said, right, I should go and hand in my crystals and feathers to the central (laughs) office, you know. Um, So I know that there are people who are deeply invested in their beliefs, whether that's COVID denialism, whether it's a different kind of denialism, like there are people out there who don't believe that AIDS exists, Um, of course, a whole anti-vaxxer crowd. And I don't have any illusions that I'm going to change their minds. Um, When someone is so deeply invested in it and all of their... um, all their peers believe in the same thing. That's a really hard thing to change. But I do think there are a lot of people out there who are just very curious. And there's a lot of evidence to say that if you're exposed to the basics of critical thinking, understanding how to recognize a reliable source, you can be in effect inoculated against a lot of the misinformation and conspiracy theories that are out there. So I'm hoping to reach those people. And do you go into into the way of or into sort of the scientific method in in the book as well? In a very simplified way, um, with lots of colourful examples, because essentially the whole question the book is trying to answer is how do we know anything at all? But then I also wanted to address chapter by chapter the kind of things that people believe. And essentially, one of the reasons people reject science is they say, ah, they're all corrupt. They're all working for big pharma and the big corporations. You can't trust them anyway. I mean, who are we supposed to believe? I hear one scientist saying this. I hear one scientist saying that. And this gives the impression, for example, because you can come across a documentary on YouTube saying that climate change is not happening. And you say, well, some say it's not happening. Some say it is. There must be a 50-50 divide in the scientific community. And of course, that's not remotely true. So I try to address these kind of concerns one by one, taking them seriously and then deconstructing them piece by piece. And that's been more or less my tactic. Well, it sounds like a, it sounds like a good way to, to go about it. And, uh, you know, I guess you're coming across a lot of the, uh, the fallacies that pop up over and over again. I mean, saying that you're not a real hippie because you're doing this is what, what would be described by some people as the, the no true Scotsman fallacy. Uh, you know, you, you set up a an idealized version of what what something is, and then say, "Well, you haven't done this particular thing, so therefore you're not part of that." And then you've got the uh, you know the the false balance fallacy, which you're just referring to there. And I think a lot of people do kind of fall into these traps, and they think, "Oh, you know, uh, it, it's it's easy to think the way I think already, so I don't need any new information or whatever." I I just really wanted to say, you know, it it seems like a really great uh, project that you've embarked on. And I hope people will uh, have a look at the book who may not necessarily be all that interested in science otherwise, and maybe take on board some of what you're trying to do. Um, Have you got any plans to, to run your, uh, your, your festival this year? 
Yeah, it's um, hopefully going to go ahead. I mean, it's really week by week, day by day, watching the headlines, hoping the variants aren't going to sweep through Europe um, with a third or a fourth wave. I'm not sure where we're at where we're at anymore. And I'm actually going to place a ban on talking about the pandemic at the festival, because one of the terrible things about this whole pandemic is how much it's divided people. All these bitter social media rows. Um, I've even lost a few friends who um, have simply blocked me on social media because I'm pro-science. And that's sad in the end. I mean, we can all believe different things. And um, I don't really want to change anybody's mind by force. But what I'm hoping to do is that we can bring people together with, you know, the, the celebration and the sense of fun. At the same time, um, I want this message to get out there as much as possible. And we try to lead as much through values rather than facts, I guess. Um, and you can bombard people with facts and it doesn't really change their minds in the end. They just pivot to another point of view. But if they can see that you share common goals, common ideals, then maybe they'll listen a little bit more. Yeah, it seems it seems like that might be uh, the way to go to try and find the uh, the common ground and work towards common goals. But hopefully, your book will help to uh, vaccinate people against misinformation, and that may help with the the real life vaccination programs that are rolling out across the world. And hopefully, that will help us all be able to get together for real in the future rather than uh, virtually like we've had to do today. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the hope. Good luck with the book. I hope everyone who uh, comes across it has a bit of a flick through and gets something good out of it. Um, And I'd just like to thank you for joining us on Lost in Science this week. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation with the generous support of the Community Radio Foundation and distributed nationally on the Community Radio Network. We'd love you to get in touch with us. If you feel so inclined, please email us at lostinsight at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR or you can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your podcast app if you have a chance to give us a rating and a review. Please do so. That will help other people to find our program or you can just listen to us however you've listened to this episode now. Same time every week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.